Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to episode number two of Myth vs. Craft, where I set out to interview interesting people who excel at what they do. My guest today is the accomplished jazz saxophonist and composer Elias Haslanker. Over the past 25 years, he's performed, recorded, and toured with countless world-class artists, including the legendary Ellis Marsalis, Christopher Cross, Sheryl Crow, Grupo Fantasma, The Temptations, and many more. Eli's music is deeply rooted in tradition, yet infused with his modern and unique voice. I encourage you to learn more about him and listen to his music at elijazz.com. Even better, if you're ever in Austin, make it a point to attend one of his Monday night shows at the famous Continental Club. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, my pleasure. Um, I wanted to um, to start with at the very beginning. I, I read I read in your bio that you picked up the saxophone in sixth grade, mm-hmm. so 11, 12 years old. That's right. Um, how did you pick the saxophone? It's a funny story. So, grew up here in Austin, and um, I didn't have a television in my house when I was a kid. So, I listened to records and KUT, and my dad had speakers in every room in the house. And um, my folks were divorced, but um, they had a good relationship. And I lived at both parents' houses, and they both had extensive record collections. So my mom had, you know, people like Willie Nelson, Emmylou Harris, Bob Dylan, Beatles, Stones, the whole kind of 60s, you know, anything you could imagine. And my dad had Similar music, but also Dizzy Gillespie, Stan Getz, Bill Evans, Weather Report, Stevie Wonder, James Brown, Steely Dan. I mean, the just list was on and on. And they both got remarried, and they brought their record collections. So my stepdad had people like Pink Floyd and Brand X and Kraftwerk. And then my stepmom had like Pat Metheny and um, Frank Zappa. And just, it was massive. So I spent my afternoons basically digging through those record collections, and then at night I would listen to KUT, which back then was all music all the time. I mean, they had some news shows, you know, all things considered, et cetera. But at night the programming was either jazz or blues or, you know, some eclectic type of music. So I was immersed in it. And so when I first got to, uh, I started taking piano lessons when I was a little bit younger, probably fourth or fifth grade, but I stopped because... It's too much discipline at the time for me. I didn't really like it. But when I got to sixth grade in public school, I went to Cassis Elementary, and then I got bussed over to Zavala on um, on First Street. Mm-hmm. Um, it was band, right? And so everybody was going to be in band. It was a cool thing to do when you're in sixth grade. And I wanted to play the drums. And so band director said, okay, cool. Here's your practice pad and your xylophone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, that's not drums, bro. I want to do, you know, rat-a-tat-tat crash. And he's like, well, I'm sorry, there's no drum set. It's either practice pad and the xylophone or you, you, know, you can't do it. And I said, okay, well, I'll take the saxophone then, which is the second coolest instrument. <laughs> Got it. So already at that age, you had identified the sax as, as a, a, the cool or one of the cool One of the cool. I thought drums was the best, but sax was pretty cool. So I, cho- I chose that one. And so I started sixth grade, you know, regular sixth grade band, just like everybody else and, uh, and on alto saxophone. Do you feel like, um, uh, was it evident to you from, from the get-go that you had a knack for it or did you work really hard at it or um, both? Yeah. I mean, at that time, 
Saxophone, like a lot of wind instruments, is not really easy to pick up. You know, it, it does take some practice, even as a sixth grader, to try to make a sound, even. And so there were some moments where it was very frustrating for me, you know, and uh, making squeaks and squawks and squonks. And, um, but it never made me want to quit. It made me want to do better and try harder. So I was one of those that was pretty self-motivated. I didn't have my parents like, you need to practice now, Eli. It was more of an internal, like, I wanted to be better. And so I kind of push myself. And, and then, of course, the peer pressure is always good, too. If you've got somebody that's competing with you for first chair, mm-hmm. you know, that, that helps spur me on. But it was really, I think, my mentors along the way that really were inspiring me to kind of go to that next level. And sixth grade wasn't really much. I didn't really have much of a mentor there. It was mostly just, you know, getting used to the dynamics of playing with other people and trying to make a good sound on the instrument and doing concerts. It was a fun social thing. Mm-hmm. So by the time seventh grade comes around, you know, you're a teenager and then all the social stuff starts to set in and a lot of people drop out of band because it's not really a cool thing to do. But I had a band director at that time that basically used fear factor. <laughs> he was very intimidating, very authoritative figure. And so it worked for me because I did not want to perform poorly in front of him. And so I learned all of my scales really, really well (laughs) at a young age. And also had a natural ability to sight read for whatever reason. I don't know why. But anyway, it was about probably seventh and eighth grade where I started to, you know, kind of separate myself from other students on the saxophone and kind of be a leader in the band and People look to me as, you know, being a good, a good musician that I started to realize, okay, hey, I, you know, I'm pretty good at this. When, when you mentioned your band director, um, have you seen the movie Whiplash? Uh, I didn't. It's, it's one of those movies that, especially in my, you know, in my circles that a lot of people just say is completely ridiculous. Right. Over the top. It's completely over the top. Not realistic at all. All drama. Uh but I know a lot of people like it, and the guy won an Academy Award, right? right. So there must have been a good performance, but I opted not to see it. Uh, it was entertaining. I, I read a, a handful of interviews with, with uh, uh, renowned jazz drummers just to get their take on, on it. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, the actor actually plays the drums, uh, but the actual recording, most of it, I believe, was, was recorded by, by other more accomplished jazz drummers. Uh-huh. And, uh, and the jazz drummers, the interviews I read, kind of tore it apart in terms of the toms are set up all incorrectly. That's, that would never happen. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Well, I think, you know, the concept, as I understand it, was just a real overbearing teacher, right, that yeah. screamed at him and made him get better, right? Well, okay, I've had teachers like that where it's tough love, right? It does work, right? I had uh, my college professor who I love and is probably my biggest mentor ever. Um, My freshman year, he was extremely hard on me. Um, You know, there would be times where he'd kick me out of lessons and say, you're not prepared for this. You need to go, just use the hour and go practice because you're not prepared. Or I'd leave my music behind one time at, at a rehearsal and he'd pick it up for me and 
give me a tongue lashings you know, about responsibility, you know. And so, but all those lessons really rang true to me. It wasn't ever an abusive situation, but it certainly was tough love. And then once you got over that kind of boot camp year as freshman year and you proved that you were actually willing to work for him, then you became, you know, he was fiercely loyal and you became, you know, on the inside. And so that type of, you know, putting you through a gut check to see if you're really serious about this, I think is, was great for me. So, you know, maybe I should see the movie, <laughs> but I just heard so many bad things about it that I was like, no, I don't want to, you know, waste my time on it. Got it. Uh, was that professor at, um, at uh, the University of Texas? Yeah, yeah. His name is Harvey Patel, and he's a world-renowned classical saxophone player. So after junior high, I went to high school, and um, at Austin High, I had my first really big musical mentor. His name is LaFalco Corky Robinson, and he was a swing saxophone player in uh, the swing era. He still has a big band today. I think he's 90, still wow. playing. And um, he ran the jazz band. He was Austin High's first band director, and he also, back when they were on the Rio Grande campus downtown, uh, Austin High was the first high school here in Austin. And, um, and so he was a marvelous musician, incredible talent, and we would uh, he was the first one who really taught me how to improvise, and uh, he forced me to transpose and sight read and really push the boundaries with me. You know, we'd always say, we can't do it. He said, he'd make us do it anyway. Yes, yes you can. You know, let's do it again. Um, I'll never forget, there was, we'd stay after school and, and practice with him. He'd just give us sheets of music that were all in concert C. And saxophone and alto in particular is in E flat, so you have to transpose either a minor third or a major sixth away from that note. Very difficult to do, right? If you're not, if you don't practice how to do it. But it's so, and everybody else had to transpose two trumpets in B flat, so that's a whole step away. <clears throat> and so we'd all kind of muddle through, and then we'd play. It was just a melody on the page. It's like a Dixieland melody. And then after that, he'd say, "Okay, well now." Make it up. Go, just improvise. Make some melodies up. And I was like, well, what do, I, you know, what do I play? How do I do this? He says, just start with the melody, and then embellish off of the melody. And anytime you feel like you're getting away or you've lost your way, come back to the melody. And that was the first time I kind of got the concept. You know, was oh, okay. You know, the melody is your guidepost for improvising, if you will. It's always when you listen to somebody great like Louis Armstrong, right? early Louis Armstrong, he's always got the melody kind of as the core wherever he's going. And so as you go through the great improvisers of, I don't know, jazz or even rock and roll or blues or whatever, it's really about the melody and the form of the song. It's not like we're just making it up out of anywhere, you know, it just doesn't appear out of the sky. There's actually a uh, framework and there's a logic to improvising and it, it really starts with learning the melody of the song because the the improvisation should simply be an extension of that original melody and the composition as well so when you're thinking about somebody like Miles Davis for example master at stating the melody and then developing during the improvisation part off of that melody and interacting with other musicians, but it's a part of an overall line and overall flow from the beginning of the song to the end of the song. And the improvisation part is simply just 
you know, a bridge, if you will, that connects all the different sections. And it should not be separate or just looked in isolation. You know, it's actually part of the overall arc of the song. So that was, you know, important lesson for me that I first got from Corky Robinson. But, uh, you know, kind of being long-winded, but getting back to Mr. Patel, Harvey Patel, um, after I got through high school where I, I had some success, was in all-state jazz band and um, felt like, you know, this was something I could do in college, majored in music as a result of kind of, you know, my education and my success in high school. Um, Harvey, I studied classical saxophone. So that was my degree was in classical saxophone. And then I learned and taught myself jazz kind of on my own through records, listening to records, reading books, you know, reading liner notes, etc. But I really learned the fundamentals of, you know, kind of the technique of the instrument, how to produce a good sound, you know, how to do, you know, how to have a line from the top of the instrument to the bottom of the instrument so that it sounds uniform and that's, there's no, you know, kind of break, no, no notes stick out or, or, you know, sound different than other, you know, how to breathe, how to listen. He was a huge influence on me. And even though the, the style or the genre was not ultimately what I do today, I take a lot of those lessons that I learned from him and still apply it to this day. And he's probably my biggest influence as far as playing the saxophone goes. Got it. I, I believe that you uh, you later moved to Texas State, what was then at the time Southwest Texas? Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and then later the Manhattan School of Music. Well, the, the chronology is slightly turned around there. So after I graduated University of Texas um, in my performance degree, I then moved to New York and attended the Manhattan School of Music. So I started my master's there, and um, and I played in the big band there and was studying with a great saxophonist who plays the lead alto for the, um, was formerly the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra, is now called the Village Vanguard Orchestra. His name is Dick Oates, and he was, I only had a few lessons with him, but he was very influential to me about how to actually be a saxophone player and make money and actually do it, you know, kind of the ins and outs of the of the business side of it and, and how to manage that part of it. Um, but, but then after Manhattan School, um, I happened to have uh, met my wife-to-be at University of Texas. And so when I moved to New York, we were apart, mm-hmm. even though... We were still in a relationship. So the long distance thing was really, really, really difficult. And so I came back after, I don't know, six, seven or eight months in New York um, and decided not to go back to move in with my wife to be at the time. And then a year later, we got married. Um, and then that's when I started my master's degree down at Texas State. And uh, I think that was 96 or 97. And I got my master's degree in composition. So I studied music composition down there. What was that, uh, the period of time you spent in New York, what was, uh, what was that like? It was awesome. Um, af- and, you know, after my wife and I got married, I, I spent the next four years convincing her to go back to New York. <laughs> so we went back in 2000 and spent four years there. Yeah. But the first time around, right after I got out of college, it was very eye-opening, obviously, just being a naive, young 21-year-old from Texas. Um, New York in the early 90s was a much different place than it is today. 
Um, and I'm sure all New Yorkers would tell you that it's been different every 10 years or so, but it was a little rougher around the edges and, um, and, but wow, it was so eye-opening. And, you know, for me as a jazz musician who grew up reading the liner notes and, you know, j the jazz mecca of the world, I always dreamed of going to school there. Ultimately, I saw myself living there for the rest of my life and being a jazz musician, you know, that was just kind of my dream. Um, but, you know, I lived there in a, uh, in an, uh, probably apartment the size of this room. <laughs> it's very, very small with two other people that went to Juilliard. And uh, it, was, it was extremely difficult just from a financial aspect, being a struggling um, music student. And I was attending Manhattan schools way up at 125th and Broadway and Juilliard where I was living was close to Juilliard, was like closer to Midtown, mm -hmm. 60s, 70s. So it was quite a hike to get up there every day and then go to school and attend school. You know, unlike UT, which has a yeah, hundreds of open practice rooms with pianos, it was you had to wait in line an hour just to sign up to get a practice room for 30 minutes to an hour every day. Wow. So that was challenging to practice even. I would end up going over to Juilliard with my buddies, sneak in and try to find a room there to try to get practice time in because it was it was a premium. And I couldn't, couldn't really do it in the apartment. You know, that's a tough one. Um, so that, that was hard. And I think ultimately, even though I enjoyed my time at the Manhattan School of Music, a combination of, you know, Amy, my wife, being back here in Texas and living in such a cramped space and racking up massive amounts of debt quickly. Uh, I always knew that I wanted to get back there, but at that time I, uh, I was happy to get back to Texas and be with Amy. And then we got married, and I actually started being a professional musician right then. I started getting calls for, for gigs and started right in. Probably I was, that was probably, when was that, 93, 94-ish. And so I started supporting myself and, and Amy too um, at that time. And I spent the next 10 years as a musician only. Um, since then, we've had kids, and I don't dare <laughs> try to make all of my money with music anymore. It's simply too hard. So fortunately, I have a, a good day job, and so does my wife. So she's a musician, too. We met at music school at UT, so we both play gigs all the time now still. But we do it, um, we do it because we love to do it, not because we, ha we have to make money doing it. Are you able to pinpoint the age at which you thought that, that you decided you wanted to give a shot at making, making a career out of music? Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, once I got to college... So out of high school and when I started majoring in music and after that first year, my freshman year, um, feeling like, okay, I can give this a shot. Of course, I didn't know what I was thinking or doing. I had no idea how hard it was going to be or even exactly what to do. You know, I just knew that I loved to play music and that I wanted to give it a shot. Um, you know, since then, I've learned a lot and I've played a lot. I've toured around the United States many times and been over to Europe and um, played music a lot. And, and of course, um, the ultimate dream is to always be able to play music. That's the goal. Uh, not necessarily to uh, make it so it's my sole source of income. Mm -hmm. um, I've just seen so many 
casualties, if you will, of the music business that um, I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm saying for somebody like me who likes to stay close to home and be with my family, that usually uh, those who are successful have to travel a lot and they have to work really, really, really hard for not a lot of money. And that's cool. I mean, I have ultimate respect for everyone who does it, and there's lots who sacrifice everything um, to be able to play music. But for my wife and I, at a certain point, when we got to be a certain age, it was, it was, you know what, we can still do this on our own terms without having to be apart and to be, you know, uh, away from our kids. So it's very much a conscious decision to say, you know, Right now, we're going to focus on raising our family. When you, uh, going back to your education, um, your master's uh, that you got at Texas State was in composition. Mm -hmm. Um, Your uh, undergrad was in performance at UT. Right. Um, In hindsight, what do you think were the most valuable lessons of of your education overall in terms of what you apply now as as a musician? Mm. Well, I think... I tell this to my students all the time is, um, you know, every experience in your life, whether it's music related or not, goes into your music, right? So um, there's, I think, every experience that I've ever had is valuable and goes into shaping the musician and person that I am today. Um, now, if I'm going to get analytical and kind of pinpoint some key things that I take with me specifically from my music today, um, undoubtedly my experience with, with Professor Patel and his tutelage on how to play the saxophone is the number one thing that I would take away from my undergrad because, um, I mean, for example, he... Branford Marsalis goes to him for lessons. Um, and people around the world seek him out for his knowledge. And I didn't realize this at the time. I just happened to go to UT and he was the guy, you know. But I, I knew a couple years into this that this was really special because you know, he has such an intense approach. He loves music so much and it really just carried through to me. And his work ethic and also just his expectation of the level that you're supposed to be at is extremely high. So he pushed me to levels of excellence that I didn't know that I could go to. And specifically when it comes to just, you know, when you're a musician, the main goal is not to impress people, but it's to move people, right? So I think a lot of musicians get stuck on number one, which is look at all the things I can do. When really all people want to feel is that your emotion, right? Your passion, and that needs to come through the music. It doesn't matter whether it's country music or rock music or jazz music or classical music. When you see that special person, that the spirit of the music and uh, is flowing through them and you take that with you no matter they're playing slow or fast or high or low or soft or loud that's the objective right 
And so all the technical things, all the, all the things that you do to make yourself a better musician needs to end at that point where you're connecting with somebody. And so I really got that from him. Um, of course, there's things that you have to do in order to get there. You have to practice your instrument. You have to uh, work on your repertoire. You have to work on your sound. There's all these things that lead to your ability to be able to connect with somebody. Um, but also there's that you know part of you inside that you have to have that passion to um, be able to channel the creative spirit you know and that's not something you can really teach i don't think but it's something that you need to be very conscious of when you're playing and um so now on the composition front on at, at texas state i think um really to me composition um is is a big deal because in my um in my music, jazz music, which a lot of people have a hard time understanding, um, it really does all start with the composition. And I try to make that kind of the primary focus um, when I'm improvising and when the band is playing. It's, is it, it starts with the composition, ends with the composition. Um, so, you know, what I talked about earlier is, is the, the improvisation is just kind of the line that connects the different parts of the song, but it all needs to relate back to the melody and the form and the structure. So my study of composition really helped me to understand kind of the nuts and bolts of what goes into creating a song and, you know, how to create a sound and a song that is me, right? And um, that, to me, is crucial um, to, to any, I think, jazz artist. You know, I do play a lot of covers still to this day, and I think it's helpful for a frame of reference for people. You know, they, oh, I know that Miles Davis song, or I know that Cannibal Adderley song, kind of brings them into the music because they've heard it before and it's familiar to them. And so I like to do that because jazz is already hard enough for people to understand, but I like to bring them in that way. But then, then when I write something for me, it certainly um, has a nod to the past, if you will. I like, I like the tradition. I like the history. So I try to write with that in mind. But it also needs to reflect how I feel in my experiences of today. So... That's that's what composition does for me is to be able to effectively kind of put my feelings and thoughts um, around, you know, my viewpoints of the world into a vehicle that I can then express myself in my own unique way, which is something that was always intriguing to me about jazz was that the the premium was placed on being an individual like Thelonious Monk or Duke Ellington or John Coltrane. All these people had their own distinct sound. You know what I mean? Or even like a Jimi Hendrix, right? Um, it was very different than anybody else, and they carved their own path. And so composition to me was the way to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I still strive to do. Now, as a dad of two, 
with a job and a music career as well, it's hard to find time to compose. I'll tell you, it's, it is challenging. But um, that's the end goal is to be able to, you know, craft a framework that I can then effectively represent the individual that I am. Do you have a set process for songwriting or how has that changed and evolved over time? Mm -hmm. I have a set process for practicing and composing music. I do. And there's, um, it's a four-step process that I tell all of my students and it's broken down into four different kind of categories. And the first is sound. The second is technique. The third is uh, practicing, improvising, and then the fourth is composition. So it's kind of the fourth quadrant of my four quadrant kind of process around how to become a better musician. For me, it's a better jazz musician, but um, you could, I think, apply it to any kind of genre or field that you like if you're going to improve yourself. You know, the first one is related to tone production, sound production. So you know, reeds are a big part of it for me, mouthpiece, long tones, you know, creating your own sound on your instrument so that you sound like you. I'm giving you the quick condensed version. The second part is technique, so all your scales, your major, minor, diminished, whole tone scales, and all the exercise books that are out there, and you, you know, whatever, I call them shapes that you want to work on, whether it's, you know, melodic minor or major sharp five, what, any of those shapes that go into these buckets of major, minor, diminished, and whole tone, right? That That's you improving your technique on your instrument. The third one, practicing, improvising. You know, a lot of young jazz musicians have a hard time going from quadrant two, which is technique, to actually improvising with a band. Mm -hmm. And so this this third section is my attempt to help bridge that so that you're that you're practicing how to improvise, not just practicing your technique, but you're actually employing devices and techniques to be able to help you interact with other people. Because when you're improvising, it's not just a one-way street, right? You have to listen to the drummer. You have to listen to the pianist. You have to listen to the bass player. And all of you together are playing together at the same time. So you just can't sit up there and practice your scales and expect people to be moved, right? So there's a lot of listening involved. There's some a lot of rhythmic interaction um, involved with being a good improviser. So you, there's this give and take with the band that that moves people. It's not just you playing your Lydian scales that is going to move move the audience. You know, they want to hear you all playing together. So that's a, a big part of it. But the fourth one, when I say composition, there's it's kind of two parts. One is learning other people's compositions, I think is a big one. So singer-songwriters, you know, go learn Bob Dylan, you know, go learn Joni Mitchell, go learn the masters who have done it before. And you know, see what speaks to you. And then out of that probably is gonna start to come your sound. The more songs you learn, the more you know, chord progressions that you learn, the more that you'll begin to discover, oh, I really like when it goes 2-5 to the, you know, minor 6 or the major 6. I really like that sound. It speaks to me. Mm -hmm. And so 
then then you can take some of those techniques and start to uh, incorporate into your own composition, right? And so when I compose, I usually always start with the melody. And people have different views on how to compose, right? And and mind you, I don't write lyrics. I just write melodies and rhythms. And and so the song is essentially just a collection of uh, rhythms and notes, right? That, and so um, I will have a either a concept of, uh, I think this is going to be a Latin tune, or I think this is going to be a funk tune, or I think this is going to be a swing tune. And I'll usually have some type of uh, inter intervallic shape in mind that I'll hear, like up a fourth or, you know, maybe some chromatic notes in there. And it'll just be kind of bubbling around in my brain. And so I'll sit down at the piano, is where I do all of my composition, and I'll start to sketch out what I think I hear. You know, and it'll take a couple of times to say, oh yeah, okay, no, a fourth is not right, it's actually a fifth. And then I'll start to sketch out what I think the melody is. And then I'll write the melody all the way out from beginning to end. Now, if there's some chords along the way that happen to fit or sound good with that melody, then I'll write them in. But generally what happens is I'll finish the melody first and I'll go back and fill in the chords later. And I find the melody really dictates the rhythm. It dictates the feel of the song. Sometimes I think it'll start in a Latin, but it's actually a swing tune and I'll change it. Um, but it really, to me, all starts with the melody. I don't, I don't start with the chords first. Um, I may sometimes start with a, just, a, like I said, an overall feel that I want to start with the Latin tune and then sketch out the melody. But <clears throat> that that's pretty much how I how I work is is sit down and kind of sketch out in my head or on paper what I'm hearing in my head. And is it typically a conscious effort where you've sat down uh, to compose and, and you be begin um, thinking through it intellectually or will you sometimes be in the shower and, and sometimes something comes and you just try to make a mental note of it? Yeah, well, there's so many great tools today like the recorder feature on your phone, right? You know, a lot of times I'm driving in the morning in the car after my coffee right after I've woken up and there'll be a melody that pops in my head. So I'll sing it into my phone so I don't lose it, right? Um, um, but very... I'd say infrequently is the whole complete thing flushed out in my head before I go sit down at the piano. It's usually just a fragment of a melody. And then I have to sit down and really kind of chop it out. You know, um, you know, I have the great fortune of being able to work every Monday night with James Polk, Dr. James Polk, who is the former uh, organist, pianist, and writer and arranger for Ray Charles for 10 years. And Dr. Polk tells a story where he got a call from, from Ray at like 3 in the morning and went up to his room. And Ray said, okay, measure one, trumpet one. And he just started writing out. There's no piano was ever consulted. No instrument was ever consulted. He was just he was sitting behind his desk and Dr. Polk had his manuscript pad out. So he wrote the whole thing out from beginning to end, every instrument strictly from his brain. He had composed a whole big band, as a whole big band. Every part, every rhythm, every note was dictated, and all James had to do is, was come and write it down. So that's kind of Mozart level stuff, right? So I'm not no, nowhere near that level. It takes me a lot of effort. And in fact, sometimes a song will happen in a day. You know, for me, I'll sit down, it takes a day to 
come back to it and it's pretty well flushed out by then. Sometimes it takes two or three days. Sometimes it takes a couple of weeks. And I've had songs that are still in my kind of working pile that are 15 years that are I feel are not done yet. So they've been sitting there. I'll come back to it. Erase, write, erase, write, erase. Ah, sucks. You know, and I, fortunately, I don't throw it away. I know better than that. But, but it goes back into the work pile, you know. And sometimes I've had one that was the, uh, the first track on my CD Dream Story, which I had re- worked on literally for about eight or nine years. And I kept coming back to it, kept coming back to it. And I finally re- I realized one day that there was no next section. It was, it was completed. Mm-hmm. It was only a 16-measure tune. And I kept on wanting to put more stuff on it. But it was done. And it had been done probably for like four or five years. Mm-hmm. You know? And I just, for whatever reason, I don't know what how the mind works or why you think it's done or why you think it's not done. But it was done that day. And we, re- we recorded it and it sounds, it's great. It's one of them, people say it's one of their favorite tunes. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's a weird thing how composing music works. It's not an exact science. There are things that people can tell you on how to start, mm-hmm. but ultimately it's um, you have kind of a, just like an artist has a bunch of brushes and colors and they've got to fill this blank canvas, mm-hmm. you know, how do you do it? Well, start by copying. That's what I always say. And then once you've got a good feel of the stuff that you like to copy, then you can start to kind of branch out on your style. Mm-hmm. And uh, But once you find that or once you find a way that you know that you can compose and actually write something that means something to you, how it unfolds is <laughs> still a complete mystery to me because, you know, I wrote one song called Patience. It was right before I was leaving to New York and leaving Amy behind. Mm-hmm. I was very sad. I knew this was going to happen. I knew she wasn't coming with me. Um, I was very introspective the whole day. And I sat down at the piano and literally wrote it in 15 minutes. It was one of those, you know. And and it's, you know, it's, it's a perfect song. It just didn't erase anything. Mm-hmm. You know, it just kind of came out. And uh, it was just the state of mind I was in at the time. You know, I guess. Mm-hmm. Do you find um, uh, Do you find it necessary, uh, especially for 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 folks who are just starting to 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 hone that craft and, and and to write songs? Do you think it's important or necessary to just write a lot of songs and to accept the fact that you will write bad songs mm-hmm. and write enough of them to just practice and to get better at it? There's, I mean. I think it's whatever works for the individual. You know, I've read stories that Stravinsky, the great, you know, 21st century, 20th century composer, it was his job to write music. So he would get up very methodically every day, start at 8 in the morning, stop at 5 in the afternoon. That was his job, was to write music. He probably didn't keep all of it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so that approach is exactly what you're talking about where um, that, that was his, he was a composer, so he wrote. And that was his job to write as much as he possibly can every day. Um, 
So I'm sure that that probably worked. I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I do believe that anytime you sit down to write music that you're probably going to get better at it. So definitely something to the practice part. But I never believe in playing songs that you don't feel are any good. You know and, what I mean, and, that, and that's what I've. Uh, that, that's the conflict that that I've, I've I haven't been able to resolve, which is how how do you go about writing and accepting that you're going to write bad songs, and then doing anything with them, be it performing or recording or whatever it is. So I guess you kind of maybe what you have to do is to just write a lot and be okay with discarding and and letting go of most of it and only keeping a few gems here and there. Sure. Or what I do is I I write the song or work on the song until I feel it's good enough to perform, right? So there's an editing process involved in it. So it's not necessarily, oh, this is finished, but it's not really up to snuff. It's more, I've worked on it long enough to know that this meets my criteria of being a good song. Mm -hmm. I'm never performing something that I don't think is good enough. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing too, is like, I think as a composer or a musician, there's a certain element of um, it's not necessarily good or bad. It's got to be honest in who you are, right? And I would think that if you're going to play and write a song that you think is not up to your standards, you're probably not being honest Mm -hmm. with yourself or with the audience. You know what I mean? So... I mean, at least in my case, if I'm performing a song that I've written, I think it's probably I think it's pretty damn good, mm-hmm. um, and definitely good enough for me to feel like I'm uh, ready to perform it. Now, I have written plenty of songs that I don't perform anymore, simply because either one, I'm tired of playing it, or two, it didn't really work out the way I thought it would. You know, but it didn't mean that when I originally performed it that I wasn't excited about it or willing to give it my best effort. You know what I mean? And I and this is something all artists struggle with, I think, is whether you're good enough, mm-hmm. right? Whether you're good enough to do anything, right? I, I know many artists still struggle with this today, even getting on stage and burying your soul in front of people. That's a big thing to overcome. Um, but I think, you know, at least from my perspective, um, I, I don't have anything to prove, and the only thing that I want to do is to share the joy that I have around creating music. Mm-hmm. And I think once you get over that fear of just the stage fright of performance or bearing your soul, and you realize that people want to share in that joy with you, then it actually becomes a very fun experience. It's not intimidating at all. It's actually something you very much look forward to. And that you want, that you even like, you know, how some athletes or musicians, you see them in the practice field or, you know, you hear them warming up or whatever. So it sounds pretty good. But when they get on stage, it's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. So that limelight brings out the best, you know, and that's what I like to think is that happens with me too, is like I thrive for that moment to be able to perform and to share that absolute joy that I have to play music. Because I know that it touches people. I know that it moves people. Because people tell me, 
you know, wow, that's, you know, that's incredible. That's, I, I'm so glad that I was here tonight. You know, that's the moments that you live for. Do you find, um, do you find a, a there's a, a strong correlation between, between the songs that you felt very strongly about and the songs that tend to resonate with people? Or is it all over the place where maybe some of your favorites don't play out as well or aren't favorites for your crowd and vice versa? Yeah. That's a good question. I don't know, actually. I mean, I do know that um, some of the songs that I've written that I think are really good have truly resonated with folks. Um, and then there's others um, that I, I think people could probably take or leave it. <laughs> so I'd like to think that everything that I've written is the most incredible composition in the world, but I know that's not a fact. So again, I think it comes back to, there's a, well, there's a couple of things. Like when you're performing live, there's something to the flow of the show, right? From the beginning to the end. And the composition is simply a part of that overall arc of the show, right? So how it, I like to think it there's like this this arc where you know you're kind of always going going up mm -hmm. to the end of the show right and then that's where you want to leave people is kind of feeling that they've just experienced something great and they've been taken from some place that's maybe pretty ordinary to something that's extraordinary mm -hmm. right and so the composition should play a part in that overall experience so you know, I think my goal is not necessarily the individual composition as much as it is the overall experience of the set. So where a composition may stand out to a certain individual, you know, my hope is that it's really the overall experience of what they've heard that night um, that, that they take away. Do you, um, at this stage in your career, do you feel like you... Uh... Uh, your performances are, are pretty even across the board or do you still feel like some nights are extra special for whatever reason and some nights are not so special? Yeah, I think definitely everybody has their ups and downs. That's life and that applies to music too. Now, when you hear incredible musicians perform like the really best, a Yo-Yo Ma or Emmylou Harris or people that are just transcendent, you will be hard-pressed to ever hear them have an off night mm -hmm. to us mere mortals. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I'm, I'm sure they'll tell you the same thing. They have good nights and bad nights. But there is that level that I think I'm reaching for and that all musicians or artists reach for is to be able to, even on your off nights, mm -hmm. to be able to elevate people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that even if you're feeling not so great or you don't feel like the musical performance is great, it was still at a level that was, you know, completely otherworldly. And so that's what I strive for is even when I know we're having an off night is to, you know, kind of push on through and know that, um, you know, there's a certain level that you want to achieve no matter what. And I think a lot of that also has to do with the band that you're playing with, the people that you play with, the audience that night plays a huge role in whether it's a special night or not. You know what I mean? Just last Monday we were playing. It was a packed house, but there was like four or five, six people that were really talking really loud, mm. you know? And so it was very distracting for me, and I felt very worried about it. You know, I don't ever say anything or 
try to show that while I'm on stage, mm -hmm. but it's running through my head. Oh, is the band, you know, getting distracted? Are the audience members getting distracted? I'm distracted. Mm -hmm. Am I playing good? Am I playing bad? You know, you try to block all that stuff out, but it's hard. You know, it's really difficult. Uh, but I got a lot of good feedback after the show. Was, oh no, it's a great show, and y'all sounded great. And so sometimes your internal struggles, you know, don't um, aren't aren't necessarily what people in the audience or in the band are feeling. Also, and so I think that's also a big challenge for musicians. You know, the sound guy is the sound right, or the lights right, is the audience right? There's so many variables on any given night to a live performance that can go wrong, that you're constantly being worried about. That's why these big productions have so many people mm -hmm. working for mm -hmm. them, right? To make sure that everything goes right. Because that's a lot to do to try to put on a show that, that is memorable and, and moving, you know? And the musicians really just need to focus on the music. But there's so many other things Especially for a small-time guy like me, it's like you know you've got to set up. I've got to set up the sound. I've mm -hmm. got to get the music to the band. I got to you know make the audience feel good and the club and you know all those things that independent artists have to do all the time. Mm -hmm. It's a lot to juggle. So to be able to put that all out of the uh, out of your mind and just focus on the music is sometimes challenging. So yeah, it, it goes up and down. <laughs> you you touch on something interesting, which is um, Ian Moore, who was on our first episode. Yeah. Um, I read an article he wrote for for Premier Guitar a few years ago, in which he talked about how he felt like earlier in his career he used to be extremely self critical, and 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 basically have a post mortem after every show and and evaluate what had gone right and what had gone wrong, and and over time came to learn um, to be easier on himself because what he found was that on nights that he thought he had really had an off night there would be folks who would come up to him and just tell him what a wonderful show, that it was one of his best shows ever. And the opposite, shows where he had felt really great, where people were like, oh, you know, you'll get him next time. You know, like it, was, it hadn't been a great show. Right. And that was what taught him to maybe not be as self-critical. Sure. No, I think it's exactly right. I mean, you know, you, you, as a musician and you're putting on a show, you get so wrapped up in all the very minute details of what you think or how you think the show should go right mm -hmm. from the set list to you know what time the guys are showing up how the sound check go you know do they have my green m&ms <laughs> <laughs> but but and then yeah after the show goes you know wow the drummer dropped a beat on that song or you know keyboard player missed that particular entrance that can really throw you off but again it's that overall arc again for, for the set right and and then most if not all people in the audience have no idea <laughs> that something has gone wrong they absolutely have no clue what they're looking for is are you having a good time mm -hmm. if you're having a good time and i'm talking about the band mm -hmm. i'm probably having a good time and so I never, ever, ever let, I used to when I was younger, and it's probably a similar story to Ian, is that uh, I never let that stuff get to me on stage anymore. If somebody messes up, that's just part of the music. We're still having fun. Mm -hmm. If I'm not having fun, that's when I know something's wrong, mm -hmm. you know? And that probably major, like the power went out, <laughs> you know, or 
there's a drunk guy that just crashed the stage. Mm. You know, something like that. But if it's just, you know, a few musical things here and there, I'll be fine. All comes out in the wash. And, uh, and, and you're absolutely right. Like, you know, people, people really aren't tuning in to those little tiny details that can sometimes really wrap, you know, artists around the axle. So it's, it's hard not to be critical on yourself just because you want it to be perfect. You want it to be the best show every single time out there. Um, but, but at the same time, you can't control everything. And, and like I said, it's supposed to be fun. Mm-hmm. So as long as you're having a good time, chances are the audience is having a good time too. What other, um, what other lessons have you learned after so many years of being a band leader? Yeah. Well, um, I think, you know, there's lots of lessons to be, to be learned. One is, I think, you know, Getting a group of people, guys or girls, um, together that all kind of share a common sensibility about life and music, um, even if they come from very diverse backgrounds. Um, I'm not saying they all have to be the exact same person, um, far from it, but having a group of people that you can kind of trust and count on in any musical situation or life situation is really key for me. Um, It kind of goes without saying that if somebody's kind of jerky, even if they're a great musician, I'd rather have somebody that's not so good of a musician that is really great to be around. Mm -hmm. So just having those good personal connections is something that I really value as a band leader. the other thing is to let musicians be who they are and not try to guide them too much. I mean, there are certain stylistic things that I expect in the bands that I lead, mm-hmm. um, whether it comes to musical interpretation. But when it comes to them, just ultimately, like once I kind of give the guidance of how I'd like the song to go, like just let them be them. Mm-hmm. You know, and don't try to control the music so much. So once you give them the framework and the roadmap on how it's supposed to go, then let them interpret it. Mm-hmm. Gives them freedom to be who they are, and it it really, I think, enhances the music because you're letting that individual kind of be shine through. Mm-hmm. You know, so I really try to emphasize that. I also try to showcase and highlight the musicians and their accomplishments in my band, so that. Mm-hmm they feel valued and that the audience also knows, you know, how great these guys are, our girls are, and that, you know, what their background is. I try to tell little stories about who they are personally so that the audience feels a little more connected to them personally. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, one thing that I've gotten a lot better at, and I think um, the audience can appreciate a little bit more at my shows, is that I really try to... Um, include the audience as much Mm -hmm. as I can and be conversational and Mm -hmm. talk about everyday things and funny things and, um, you know, talk about why jazz is important. I try to put a few history lessons in Mm -hmm. there, tell them about 
you know, musicians that influence me and why certain records are important to listen to and why the music is an important part of our culture and our fabric as the, as the United States, you know, and even Texas and Austin, to kind of try to bring it together as a community, you know, so because it is a it is a simpatico relationship. I mean, if the audience isn't there, the music isn't there. Mm-hmm. If the music isn't there, the audience is there. It's really a two-way kind of thing. So, you know, oftentimes, especially in jazz, I've seen it happen far too often where the band leader gets up there and just says, here's our next song. And then they're off and running, mm-hmm. you know, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. There's no interaction. It feels very like very much like there's a divide mm-hmm. between the band and the audience. And to me, and I learned a lot of this from when I was on the road with Maynard Ferguson, who's a great trumpet player um, from the swing era. Um, he crossed over and had a few pop hits and, and was an incredible band leader. Mm-hmm. Um, I went on the road with him when I was in New York when he was in his 70s and he was still still playing great. But I learned so much from just his stage presence and how he interacted with the audience. He he was just having a ball all the time mm-hmm. and was so gracious to the audience. And um, it was all about putting on the show for the audience and involving them. And then after the show, he would every night sign every single autograph, listen to every single story. Didn't matter how corny or cheesy or you know weird it was, he was there. Mm-hmm. until the very end to sign all the autographs and listen to all the stories and talk and interact with people. So that was a big influence on me. Um, and I've always enjoyed you know, seeing performers that have a good rapport with the audience, mm-hmm. that they're engaging them and trying to make them feel like they're part of the audience. So it's something I've really striven, that I strive for at my shows too. So I think, you know, there's other parts of band leaders that I don't don't like being a band leader, like having to deal with the money, mm-hmm. having to deal with people who are late to shows, having to deal with, you know, rude or bossy contractors that hire you for stuff or logistics. To, you know, there's a lot of headache that goes along with it too. But ultimately, you know, um, I've had a lot of fun <laughs> doing it and I've had a lot of great experiences and a lot of funny stories. Mm-hmm. As a result of doing it, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Hopefully, I'm blessed enough to to keep doing it for a lot longer too. <laughs> you've uh, <laughs> you've played with uh, um, with a number of people uh, of of really well known um, and accomplished musicians. Is there anyone out there? I'm sure there's a handful, but can you name a couple of people with whom you haven't worked that you would really like to collaborate with? Wow, that's a that's a tough one. Um, you know, I got a chance to play briefly with Wynton Marsalis uh, when I was in New York, and it was just at his apartment, um, hanging out with him for a couple of hours. Wow. Um, but I never really got to play in his band. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be something that I would welcome and love. Um, he was a big influence on me growing up. Um, who else? I think, um, gosh, I don't know. Um, that's a hard one because the way that I look at any of those type of opportunities is I never have gone out and sought them out or mm-hmm. said, well, I'd really love to play with X, Y, Z. It's just, I just kind of uh, 
ride down the river of life and mm -hmm. see what comes my way. And I've been fortunate enough to have some opportunities knock on my door. Mm -hmm. um, so it's hard to say. I mean, gosh, you know, playing with somebody like Earth, Wind, and Fire might be, <laughs> that might be a lot of fun. That'd, yeah. that'd be a blast. They have a killer horn section. Um, I think playing with Willie Nelson might be pretty awesome. Um, who else? Uh, I think uh, jazz-wise, um, I guess, you know, playing with somebody like Herbie Hancock would be a dream come true. Um you know, I'd have to give it some more thought. But, yeah, there are a lot of incredible musical situations out there that I'd, I'm sure I'd love to be a part of. Well, you're a, you're a young guy, so uh, <laughs> so many, many of these will come to fruition. Yeah. Uh, moving over to the recording side of things, um, I've, I've gotten the sense throughout our conversation that, that performing is, is, is very enjoyable and a very important part of your musical identity. Absolutely. How do you feel about recording? I like it. It's very expensive, though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love, I wish I could do a record once a year. You know, that would be the goal. Um, but unfortunately, I just don't have the discretionary funds to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we could talk for hours on this topic, but the recording industry in general, as you've probably read, is, in, is not in very good shape. Now, the cost of doing a recording has come down, but it's still a significant expenditure. Mm -hmm. So there are independent artists like myself that can put enough bread together to do it, um, but to actually sustain it on a regular basis is, is pretty challenging, um, just, just financially, because mm -hmm. you like to be able to pay the band. Obviously, the, the engineer and the studio cost time, and then the, the whole effort of getting it um, produced and reproduced and then you know if you ha are going to have any success at all you have to have a massive push in promotion mm -hmm. which costs a lot of money mm -hmm. almost as much if not more than the recording itself mm -hmm. um, so uh, that it, it's a quite an undertaking you know and for my last recording live at the gallery which did quite well um, got four and a half stars in, in downbeat and played across United States, Canada, Japan, Western Europe, you know, um, by all accounts of a successful jazz release, mm -hmm. um, it's still a break-even proposition, mm -hmm. you know, financially. And I would venture to say that probably that's the case for a lot of independent artists, you know. And I would think that, um, uh, you know, it's, it's more of a marketing endeavor rather than a profit stream which is unfortunate mm -hmm. um so i think you know, there's a lot of articles that have been published about this you know the advent of streaming and um and the the lower the lower you know um per song cut i guess if you will from 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 places like apple and and just uh not a lot of publishing opportunities for musicians, you know. So the whole recording kind of side of the of the fence for uh, being a money maker is is really not there for a lot of independent artists. Now, obviously it can be done. I mean, I think Spoon is a great example. Bob Schneider is another great example that they probably do quite well on their recordings. Um, but uh, it's probably due to the fact that they also tour quite a bit too and can sell their merchandise. And um, what I've seen, at least what I've read that resonates with me is that 
most independent artists have have can that can go on the road um do quite well with the ticket sales and their merchandise and and that's how they generate a lot of their income now if they have a favorable record deal that doesn't take all of their publishing and doesn't you know spend a zillions of dollars on the recording that they have to you know they have to pay back mm-hmm. the record company recoups before they even just get a percent mm-hmm. of those profits you know most of those in any kind of major deal from what I understand is like they even after they recoup they still just get a small percentage of the mm-hmm. CD you know if any so um you know that's it's just tough i i love the process though the process is a lot of fun you know you get in the studio for a few days and time just kind of rolls by and 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 you're having fun playing music and hanging with the with the guys in in the studio i mean that's just a lot of fun you get to hear it back and um and and put together this you know piece of art it's it's just a it's a fun place to be and uh there's a lot of um, creativeness that goes into it. It's a different thing than performing live, obviously, because you're kind of got the tape rolling and you're under the pressure of the microphone right in front of you and you feel like you have to perform. But it's a different mindset that goes on is you have to be free and still have to be relaxed. Um, and then you hope for the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in, in, in your situation, why record an album? Because it used to be, right, you, you, you go on tour and you play shows to support sales of the album. And now it seems like for, for many artists, it's really record an album to have a reason to go on. Not a reason to go on tour, but to have something, to have material. And uh, so is it primarily uh, that it's, uh, it's enjoyable and you're creating a piece of art and it's almost for, mostly for personal satisfaction? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a good question, especially in my case, but I don't go on tour, right? So I think that you've kind of hit the nail on the head for me as far as um, if there would be a next step in our evolution would be, you know, we'd, we'd probably have to go on the road. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, you know, to, to answer your question directly, is it for me? Yeah, it's always for me. I mean, I'm going to be very selfish about it. I'm always doing music for me first um, because I get joy from it. It's a joyful experience. It fulfills me spiritually you know just emotionally fulfilling to be able to play and record and perform music i mean it's always going to be for me first and i'm i mean i mean some people might hear that and say oh you're very selfish no it's not it's it's um it's it's why people go to work right it's why people volunteer or it's it's just one of those things that kind of makes you whole as a person right i have to do it for me um fortunately you know, a few other people like it too. And, you know, and so I'm, I'm lucky to be able to do it. I feel very fortunate enough to be able to do it. But if there wasn't an audience there, would I still do it? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but it is a, you know, kind of a craft um, that I like to, to do and, and have done it over years. I've, um, and, and gotten pretty good at it. So, you know, why do another recording? Yes, would be, to create this piece of art, but also I think, um, you know, to, to continue to kind of, you know, build my catalog and to kind of leave a legacy of my music. 
um, to look back on and feel proud about the accomplishment, um, share with my family, share with others. Um, and also, of course, like you said, to have something to talk about. <laughs> I mean, you know, like publish or perish, right? That's the old saying goes. The same thing, I think, applies for musicians as well, even in a local artist like myself. Like, you have to have something to be able to talk about and to keep the thing going. And that's what a recording really does. Now, you know, I've, I've given it a lot of thought about this. You know, we could do, we could do some, some short tours here and there, you know, around people's schedules. Dr. Polk is in his 70s and, um, and doesn't get around that great. And we've got a B3 organ that we've got to contend with. That's a beast to try to get around. So logistically, it's just been a bit of an intimidation factor for me. And I'm not a booking agent. I'm not a touring manager either. I don't really want to do that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So that's another part of it is I haven't spent a lot of time investigating that aspect. Um, and then let's face it. I mean, jazz, it's tough. It's tough to book. It's not a terribly accessible form of music. Um, there is, There are niche audiences around the United States that still support it in small clubs. Um, but it's overall, like if you look at just straight up financially going on the road with the jazz band, mm -hmm. probably not very smart to do, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So that's the other part of it is how to put a band like mine on the road and actually come out of it with some money in your pocket. Mm -hmm. That's a tough one. So, you know, not saying it would be impossible. But, you know, I'm leaving the doors open mm -hmm. to some magic <laughs> benefactor that may uh, come along and make that happen. But for now, we definitely have to think about what the next recording is because it's been a year and a half now yeah. since my last one, and I've got to figure out what to do next. But uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. There's no, no, no big rush or pressure to, to make it work. I'd love to do it again. i just got to figure out how to do it. Got it. Um, your band, uh, Church on Monday, is, uh, is I take it, going to be playing Monday nights at the Continental Club Gallery for the foreseeable future. Yes. Fantastic. Do you have any final words of advice for, for aspiring musicians, songwriters, for, for yourself at age 18? Age 18? Wow. Okay, well, the first thing is, you know, do it because you love it, right? Don't do it for any other reason. Don't do it for girls. Don't do it for booze. Don't do it, definitely don't do it for money because <laughs> those things come and go. And if you do it because you love it and you really want to do it and you work on it because you love it and it's because it's what you have to do, then you'll probably find your way just fine. So I always, um, now, Part two, money is a real issue with music and musicians and will always be a real issue. So, you know, you've got to figure that out. And there are trade-offs that people make. Um, like myself, I like to live a comfortable life with my family. So um, I've made the appropriate trade-off. It still doesn't mean that I don't play. I play a lot and do it at a high level. So it doesn't mean 
I always, I always reject the statement that you can't be an artist and have a day job or, or be a successful artist and have other means of making an income other than your art. I just simply don't buy that train of thought. There are too many examples of the past where that is simply not the case. Charles Ives, for example, was a, one of the most famous 20th century, you know, contemporary classical composers who's insurance salesman also <laughs> very successful one at that but 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 many others so so you know you have to decide i would think maybe not at 18 but at some point how you're going to balance that now if you choose to just do your art and sacrifice for your art just know that there's going to be some challenges along the way when it comes to relationships when it comes to family comes to money when it comes to your lifestyle mm-hmm. having a car with insurance having health insurance having a house with insurance mm-hmm. having a spouse having kids all of those things take significant amounts of money and if you're not a top 40 artist which you probably are not going to be you're going to have to think about how to balance all those things in life and so <laughs> One of the things that I learned early is you have to keep your overhead low, um, very low, in order to give you the flexibility to play the music that you want to play. So, I mean, those are just a few, a few of my um, thoughts. Um, you know, I could go on and on for this, but you also have to make the right decisions, you know, when it comes to um, how you're going to conduct yourself, who you're going to play with, the venues that you're going to target. Definitely go out and hear other people that are doing what you're doing, doing it successfully. Start locally, you know, in your, or move to a place that you feel is simpatico with, your style or gives you opportunity to to give your music a chance Mm -hmm. to be heard and and network you know it's very important in any field but i think in music and that's a tough one you know i mean there's a lot of musicians especially in austin and not a lot of places to play so um, it may take some time you know Certainly, uh, you would have to have um, a don't take no for an answer attitude. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I've been doing it for how many years now? I don't know. A long time. And still don't get called back for gigs, you know. I've made a decent name for myself in Austin. Still sometimes get double booked or the money's wrong mm-hmm. or get treated terribly mm-hmm. at a show. The stage manager doesn't care and treats you like crap, you know. You have to have a tough skin and willing to be resilient and bounce back in all situations because mm-hmm. um, it's... It is a challenging business to be in if you want to do it um, for a long time. (laughs) But, man, it is rewarding. Mm -hmm. 
You know, it is extremely rewarding. Despite all the obstacles, when you have that moment to be able to perform in front of an appreciative audience who gets what you're doing and gives you that feedback, there's no amount of money or booze or any attention that is going to replace how that feels. And that's why we do it, you know, is to have that feedback, is to have that kind of, I wouldn't say it's validation, but it would be a confirmation that, you know, you've, you've moved somebody, you know, and that, you know, they can relate and that you've hopefully helped somebody feel better and feel joy, feel good about, you know, their situation and your situation and you've kind of done it together, you know, so elevated things. That's kind of, that's kind of my hope is that music does that, is it makes the world a better place, you know, that's what, that's what I'm here to do is to try to make the world a better place through music. Eli, that is fantastic advice, uh, a great outlook. I really appreciate your time. I've enjoyed our conversation. My pleasure. Thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eli as much as I did. Until next time.